This is The Top, where I interview entrepreneurs who are number one or number two in their industry in terms of revenue or customer base. You'll learn how much revenue they're making, what their marketing funnel looks like, and how many customers they have. I'm now at $20,000 per talk. Five and six million. He is hell-bent on global domination. We just broke our 100,000 unit soul mark. And I'm your host, Nathan Latka. Yesterday, you guys heard me talk in depth with Greg Rollett, who breaks down how he used a $1,400 magazine ad to drive $8,700 in new monthly revenue. And he does it every freaking month. This is going to blow your mind. Good morning, Top Tribe. Nathan Latka here, and I got to tell you, you're going to love our guest today. He's super unique. His name is Jim Fowler, and he's the founder and CEO of Jigsaw. Founded in 2003, sold to Salesforce in 2010, and now he is the founder and CEO of Our. He went to the University of Colorado, and it might surprise you to realize he actually ran a ski resort in Idaho called Idaho called Lookout Pass and also served in the U.S. Navy as a diving and salvage officer. You're going to love his story. Jim, are you ready to take us to the top? I am, Nathan. Great good, to be here. Good, good, good. Well, look, we have a lot of people on the show, folks like Neil Patel and Heaton Shaw, folks like John Lee Dumas, who you know credited a lot of his success with his podcast in episode number 21 to his military background. Help me understand how you went from ski resort to Navy or maybe vice versa to then Jigsaw. <laughs> well, that's a long and, and <laughs> winding trail, Nathan, I got to say. Um, I... Uh, um, needed a, a way to pay my way through college. So, um, I went to university of Colorado on an ROTC scholarship. When I graduated, I had to spend four years in the U S Navy, uh, as, and I did that as a Navy diver. Um, and that was awesome. Um, but I knew that that was not going to be a career I planned on, you know, paying my debt back to uncle Sam. And, um, when I got out of the Navy, one of my best friends from college, um, he had moved back to his hometown in, in Idaho, and I needed a partner to uh, get into the ski business with. So we were a couple of 26-year-old, you know, ding-dongs that didn't really know <laughs> what we were doing. And uh, we, we, you know, to say we bought the ski area would be the wrong way to think about it. It was owned by a, a nonprofit organization. Um, but from basically age 26 to 30, we owned and operated this small ski, ski area, to call it a resort. <laughs> we give you the wrong, wrong idea, but... It was a fantastic experience. I mean, I kind of look at that as a, my on-the-ground MBA. I learned a lot of lessons about business that carried on into the tech world. But basically, I hit 30, um, age 30 in 1995. And, you know, I think when, when uh, you know, men hit their age of 30, they got to decide whether they're actually going to grow up and be adults. Right? <laughs> so, um, and, and the whole internet boom was just beginning. My mother uh, and my brother lived out here in the Bay Area, and I decided to run away and join the internet circus. I was, you know, being a snow farmer was a great, great thing to do for four years, and I really enjoyed it, but um, it wasn't something that, uh, you know, was really um, dynamic. And I remember getting here to the, to the Bay Area in 19, you know, 95, 96, thinking, oh, those, oh, are the those are the heydays. Oh, well, <laughs> it was. I remember thinking, oh, I've already missed, the, you know, the boat, the gold rush has already occurred. Um, but uh, um, actually, of course, as you well know, it was just beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, what do you do when you've been a Navy diving and salvage officer and an owner operator of a skier and you want to get into the tech business? Well, I became a salesman and I worked, I did several startups and worked my way up to VP of sales. And finally, uh, I'd been trying to think of ways to start a company. And finally, in, uh, in 03, I came up with the idea for Jigsaw. 
got it funded in the you know in the in the just the darkest part of the nuclear. Walk us through that idea real quick before you talk about funding. What what is Jigsaw? So Jigsaw um, was bought by Salesforce in 2010, as you mentioned. It was actually one of the largest. Um, um, it was the by far the largest acquisition that Salesforce had ever done at that point in time. What was the sale uh, price again? It it, it was. Um, uh, $175 million was the final price. We, there was an earnout on it that we got 100% of. So um, it ended up being $175 million, which is one of the largest acquisitions in 2010. Now, pff, people raise more money than that every day, yeah. it seems like. But uh, at the time, it was a, it was a big deal. Um, but uh, in 03, uh, you know, we were, we were, the Silicon Valley was still in a deep freeze following the huge bust of, you know, 01. And, uh, and of course, you know, not the after effects of 9-11 um, but at that point in time, getting anything was fun. Getting anything funded was really difficult. But, uh, I, um, I have a great story for your listeners that are thinking about starting a business because, um, what happened was I got irritated at, you know, my boss's boss at this company I was working for. And, uh, I came home and my wife said, honey, you are never going to be happy until you're running your own company. <laughs> And it's I really feel like hard. a lot of listeners right now are going, I'm stuck in corporate and I am, I am Jim, I'm eating all your words here. Give it to me. Exactly. And you know, what do you do when you're 35 years old? You know, you've got a kid who you got to put through college. Um, you're making a really good salary as a VP of sales. I was making, you know, very good money. What's very good. Uh, well, hell, I don't know. I was probably making three or 400 grand that year, which for me, you know, especially coming from the, you know, the, the ski area life was a lot of yep, money. Yep. Um, and, uh, I, uh, I uh, sat there and, and uh, thought, you know, how do you take the time to go do this? Because it's a big risk. And what I did was um, I knew that if I didn't really focus on this, it just wasn't going to happen. So every single morning, I'm an early riser anyway from my Navy days, I got into the office um, from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. and I blocked out my calendar. And I did not look at my email. I never answered my phone. I shut the door to my office and for an hour every day, I just sat there and whiteboarded and thought, okay. And I started with what I know. And actually, Jigsaw was kind of iterated out of the third that I had an idea that I quickly broke. The next idea kind of had some legs. And then Jigsaw kind of morphed out of that second so idea. You were doing this whiteboarding while you were still in your sales job. Is that right? You got there early and whiteboarded thinking about exactly. your new idea? I do my best thinking in the morning. Yep. You know, some people it's in the afternoon, some people it's at night, whatever that point in, it is for your, you know, your entrepreneur listeners. Just take at least one hour and be disciplined. Make sure you do it first. It's kind of like working out. You know, if you don't do it in the morning, it usually isn't going to happen. But well, this is the same thing for me. And do you so, credit? Do you credit a lot of that just sheer focus and consistency and determination to your training in ROTC and the four years in service? I do, but you know, I, I don't think that I'm. You know, like when, on the grand scheme of you know how disciplined you are. I think that I really, anyone can do it. I know lots of people that are far more disciplined than me. The most important thing is that you take that out of your day first. It's, that's more important than actual skill. It's just, it's like being a writer, right? It's a craft. You have to do it. It's you don't like do just it wake first. Up one, you don't wake up one morning and become a great writer. You've got to spend your time. It's the same thing. You know, one of the biggest things I hear from, you know, wannabe entrepreneurs is, well, gosh, if I just had a good idea. Well, guess what? <laughs> that takes a lot of work. It's not like it just pops into your head, you know, as you sleep one night. Mm -hmm. You've got to spend time and really and start with what you know. That's what I did. I knew sales. I was a VP of sales. I started thinking about sales problems. And of course, Jigsaw, I didn't answer your question. Jigsaw was a gigantic business card exchange 
Mm. Um, and what it did is it created a very valuable data set. And the reason Salesforce bought us is because what's more valuable, the container of the data or the data itself? The data, yeah. And you know, your listeners will now know Jigsaw's data.com, which is, of course, part of, of Salesforce. It's the data cloud. So And so walk us through, um, let me break down just a few like tactical numbers real quick. When you sold in 2010, what were annual revenues at Jigsaw? We were, um, our previous year was, I think, 17 million, 18 million. And then, you know, our, we were on a 25 million run rate at that point in time. And we were growing very quickly. That's we about, top about, line? Yeah. We, we, we would our run rate at the point of sale was about 25 million in run rate when we got bought. Um, and Jim, and just so people know, run, guys, what run rate means, it basically means if in August you did X amount of money, you do a run rate, you multiply that times 12. That's how you get to the 25 million. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So were you guys profitable or were you losing money? We were profitable. Um, of course, we were invested. We just basically kept our cash even, um, and uh, but we were cash flow positive at that point in time. So you mentioned earlier in the show something called earnout, and I'm part of a lot of mastermind groups of people that have sold businesses for way less, by the way, than 175. And they'll say, "Hey guys, you're going to see us in TechCrunch tomorrow. We're selling for 30 million. That's the number that everyone's going to brag about. But really, we're only making a million, and about 90 percent of the whole transaction volume is on like a 10 year earnout that we probably will never see because it's on net." profit versus top line and all this other stuff. What percentage of your 175 was cash up front versus earn out? If you go look at the uh, all the press releases that Salesforce did, they uh, they announced the deal at 142, but it was actually 150 because we had 8 million in cash when we got bought. So that just went right back to shareholders. So that, that's what, what they were really trying to do at that point in time. They were very sensitive to their stock price getting pummeled for overpaying. Mm. Um, they had never bought anything for more than 30 million. Um, you know, now they go out and do huge acquisitions and that's a small acquisition. But back in 2010, this was very scary for them. So they wanted to go to the street and not look like they were overpaying. So, um, because our, um, you know, revenue multiple was very high. Yeah. It's a really high, did. it's a really high, well, not now, but yeah. But then it was big. Yep. And so, um, they wanted to announce it as low as possible and our earnout was a, you know, a layup. I mean, that was the way we, you know, they said, Hey, would you consider an earnout? I said, if it's a true layup, um, great. So it was 25 million in earnout and 150, uh, was the purchase price. And guys, top tribe, just to understand what earnout is, it's basically the acquiring company going, Hey Jim, we're going to buy you for 150 million. And if you hit X performance targets over the next year, two years, whatever it is, we'll give you the additional 25 million. And what Jim means when he says a layup, it means how many contingencies are there attached? Jim, is that accurate? It is. In fact, you know, to your entrepreneurs that ever do sell your company, um, my board was concerned about it, as you can imagine, because usually companies don't make earnouts. Yep, very um, rare. Things go wrong. You lose control. Um, we, we luckily were in a position where we could bargain very, very hard on that. And, uh, and we did, um, and it was a layup and we ended up making the, the whole earn out, but everything changes after your company gets bought and you lose control. So my recommendation is, is avoid them whenever possible, but most acquiring companies want them for, to keep everyone's interests aligned. Walk me through, Jim, when was there, I'm sure there are other players at the table at Salesforce. Did you go in and say, I, w I want to sell the company, but let me position it to make sure that people understand I'm not for sale to maximize your price? Or did you really deep down as a founder looking back, you did really want to sell and you want to maximize your price? Which one was it? Well, we, we almost got bought a year and a half before that, but that deal broke at the end of 08. Um, and was Salesforce it past diligence it, or was it in diligence that that deal uh, broke? We were, we were two weeks away from closing that deal. Oh, but it was, purchase agreement was done? Yeah, no, oh, way past. Oh, I mean, brutal. Yeah, you know, and that's the other thing that I'll tell your, your listeners as well is the deal is never done. 
until it's done. Just, you can never get yourself in the mindset that the deal is done. You can't start counting the money. You can't, you're got, you have to make sure your people know um, that, hey, this deal, you know, is never done. And because it's, it can be really disheartening. And thank goodness we didn't um, get bought then because we got bought for a lot more money a year and a half later. But the point I'm really making is, is that, um, you know, you just have to approach it that way. Well, you'd have to manage a big emotional letdown if the deal fell through, if, if people felt confident it was going to close. So it's better to undersell it to your team and internally. Luckily for us, we, um, once we got the offer, then we went out and listened to other, you know, said, Hey, we've got this offer. Is anyone, cause we were n- in neither situation where we, you know, actively out there trying to sell the company. Yep. We were approached both times. Um, and, uh, was it an uh, email? Was it a random email from the BD guy at Salesforce? Um, no, no, no. We had had a long-term relationship. In fact, my COO, um, really had a great relationship with, with Salesforce and, you know, he had a huge hand in, in doing this and doing that deal. Um, they were already a partner of ours and, uh, and all of that. So they were very familiar. And again, like I said, and back in 08, they took a really close look at us, but you know, that was before they decided to really start acquiring. So got it. Well, this is so viable, Jim, you've taught so far, you've taught the try about earnouts, about maximizing valuation, about the heyday back in 2000 or back in 1995 and how you jumped right in. Okay. Top tribe sponsors are wanting to pay me a lot of money to get on the show. And I'm telling them all no, because I don't want to waste your time. So help me out and go subscribe to the show in iTunes and then leave a rating and review. So we are about to get to my favorite part of the show. I can't wait for your answers. Do you know what time it is? Uh, nope. <laughs> what time is it? <laughs> so, and that is how the XROTC member and 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 ski resort guide uh, play, plays his uh plays his game on his feet. So Jim, it's time for the famous five. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, brother. Number one, what is your favorite business book? Uh, the Innovator's Dilemma. Innovators, and that is Clay Christensen, Clay I believe. Yeah, yep, that's my favorite. The most useful was um, uh, Jim Collins. Um, uh, Good to great. Good to great. I, that's a bible, an action bible. But my favorite, from an interest perspective, was certainly the Innovator's Dilemma. Well, there you guys go, and we will link to that. All of his books, all the numbers, everything you know, need to know about Jim at nathanlatka.com forward slash the top seven three. Okay, Jim, number two. Which CEO are you following or studying right now? Well, this is easy for me. Uh, Mark Benioff, um, you know, I know the guy well, obviously, because he bought Jigsaw, but I also think that no one um, from a business perspective positions his company in the B2B world better than Mark. He's just a genius. CEO of Salesforce there, guys. Yes. Yep. Sorry. No worries. Number three, Jim, what is your favorite online tool besides your, uh, your new company, Owler? Oh, it, it, no fair. Nathan. It's absolutely Owler and your users. Well, uh, tell us you what it is tell, real quick. Yeah, tell us what it Owler is. Owler is a, is a free um, tool to track your competitors. Um, first and foremost, your company, your competitors. Um, we send free competitive intelligence reports out there. It's a crowdsource model, but it also helps you follow your customers, your partners. Every one of your, your users should absolutely be using it. It's free. Um, and, uh, you know, feel free to send your thoughts in, folks. But um, that's absolutely my favorite. I do love Evernote um, as well, of course, but I use it. But I, I have to answer Owler on this one. There you go, guys. Owler.com. They help you get data on over 13 million companies. I I definitely, uh, I can tell you they will have data on your competitors. We'll link to that in the show notes, Jim. Uh, Number four, um, again, you've built an empire. You you mentioned, are you married, have kids, how many? Uh, I have one, one child and a dog. (laughs) And a dog, and a dog. How old is a little one? 
Uh, my son is 14. He just starting freshman football. So. There you go. Uh, the, yeah. the competitive beast is coming out already. Exactly. Okay, so yes or no, uh, Jim, are you getting eight hours of sleep every night? Oh, never. <laughs> if you're an entrepreneur, I mean, that, I'm pretty sure that's a trick question because show me an entrepreneur that gets eight hours of sleep and I'll show you a company that's going to fail. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Yep. In, in, in. It, it, hey, look, we get people, they answer that, they go one or two ways. They either say, always, you have to get sleep to be efficient when you're awake. And then we have people that go, I don't need sleep, like two hours. If you get eight hours of sleep, you're, you're, you're not working hard enough. Now, I'm not saying that you don't need to get efficient. Um, one piece of advice I would give to your listeners on this is when I started Jigsaw, I made a deal with my wife and I said, look, I'm going to work my butt off during the week. Um, you know, I will be home for dinner and when I'm not traveling at 6.30 and, you know, I'll be there. My son was young then, you know, I'll, I will be with you guys until 8.30 and I got to go back to work. Um, but I'm not going to work on the weekends unless it's an emergency. So that's when I would recharge. And I, I, it's not that you, you know, get three or four hours of sleep a day that you would die. But during the week when everything's on, you know, never would I get it, but you need time to recharge in whatever way you do that. For me, it was making sure to spend time with my family. So I really recommend you do that. You can't, you can't burn your whole life doing nothing but your job. So would you do a 10 hour sleep on Friday night and maybe a 10 hour Saturday night to recharge or no? Well, I wouldn't get eight hours. I was, I'm more of like a six hour guy. Yeah. Um, my COO who was instrumental in selling jigsaw, he literally can operate on four or five hours a night. I would, I can't do that more yeah. than, you know, one or, one or two nights in a row. Um, you got to get your rest, but I just saying eight hours, that's, you know, that's for people with corporate jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Entrepreneurs don't just don't get that in my experience. Yep. No, I totally agree with you. Okay. So I think you, you said you, you were 30 in 1995. So I think you're probably about 51 years old now. Take us back. 50. 20, yeah. No, 50. I just turned 50. There yeah, you yeah. go. Okay. So take us back 30 years. What would you tell your 20 year old self if it could just be one thing? I, um, started at university of Colorado as a business major and, um, I, um, knew I wanted to be a businessman at some point in the future, but I got in, I will never forget. I'm, it was sophomore year where, you know, I'd already gone through all the psychology and sociology and, you know, all those classes you have to take as a freshman. And I took accounting and statistics and I hated it. I mean, <laughs> beyond imagination. And I'll never forget thinking, um, I'm, this is a risk, but I can't stand this. I, I think, you know, learning the theory that you learn in business school is not worthwhile if you're going to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I remember thinking very distinctly, I'm going to hire people to do, you know, accounting and statistics for me one day. <laughs> <laughs> and so I actually changed my major to Central and East European Studies. And at the time, I was really afraid. It was about age 20. I was thinking back when I looked at this, at this question. And, and I would, what I would tell myself is, you're making the right decision. Go major in something that you really enjoy because I think being multifaceted is one of the most important parts of being an entrepreneur because it forces you to start looking at things from different lenses. And that's why I'm not a big fan of, um, of um, MBAs. I just, I really think that it teaches you the academic and theoretical side of business and you're going to get a lot better help you know, by getting some training that's really completely opposite or, you know, a completely different facet of what you think. And I've seen this happen over and over again. Some, some of the best um, d uh, computer programmers in the Silicon Valley are, are, had a liberal arts degree. Or they're like artists on the side or they act yes. on the side or something. Yep. Exactly. Or they study so, Disneyland or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really, now, if you're going to be a VC or you're going to be, you know, there are certain times when you need, you know, a sheepskin from, you know, Stanford or Harvard or Wharton, but for most of us, 
it's you're going to learn you're going to learn everything you need to learn on the ground and doing it and that would be the other thing is just if you're going to be an entrepreneur do it there i mean i i hit 35 before i mean i obviously was an entrepreneur in the ski business but you know time runs out as you get older you know you get golden handcuffs on and it's really difficult to do it so mm-hmm. it's a young it's a young person's game and my recommendation is just be fearless and do it. Go for it. Now, Jim, you're up to some fun stuff. I mean, you've already had a ton of success. You're doing Owler now. Walk us through, if people want to connect with you online and follow your journey, where can they connect with you? Well, the easiest way to do it is um, uh, um, on LinkedIn. And my email is fowler at owler.com. So any of your listeners that want to link to me, um, great. And you can uh, follow me there as well as, of course, um, go to Owler and follow the Owler blog. Guys, there you have it. From ROTC to ski resort operator to a $175 million exit. Jim, thanks for taking us to the top. Uh, My pleasure, Nathan. It was a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Coming up tomorrow, guys, you hear from my good hokey friend. His name is Ryan Farley. He quit a six-figure salary job and built a lawn care company. You wouldn't believe it. It's done over six million bucks in funding and has hundreds of paying customers. Okay, Top Tribe, sponsors are wanting to pay me a lot of money to get on the show and I'm telling them all no because I don't want to waste your time. So help me out and go subscribe to the show in iTunes and then leave a rating and review. 